it's this old west town that they built for like John Wayne films and all the facades have actual buildings because they would shoot interiors but also those would be offices and places for the actors to stay and um it's just still there and it's all cute and they have a saloon and um little museums and a indoor stage and an outdoor stage and so bands can play there we dj we've done festivals there and so we've all been there a ton of times we've got friends and people come over from la and it's just a it's just a really fun place to get a little wild and run around in the desert that's happening like after the show so you're you're talking about a pretty late night here it sounds like yeah the bus call wasn't until four that's what happened (laughs) so everybody's a little crispy today included including myself maybe it was a pandemic but i I, i'm falling asleep at like 10 o'clock these days so people who can continue to stay out that late is very very impressive to me well tour it's it's not like staying up that late at home although i am a night owl um courtney was having a pretty tough time the first couple days he was like i can't sleep anymore I got to go to bed. And we're like, Courtney, it's 10 tomorrow. This is when we go on stage. You got to like try to prep, prep yourself. But when you get that kind of adrenaline rush at, at bedtime, then you can stay up late because you've got this whole extra, you know, juice to uh, all this energy to burn. After you've been doing it for a long time and, you know, you, you start to have a family and, you, you know, you take on other jobs and it's like this, like this entire different life that you get to return to every so often. Yeah. And it used to be much more like you get everything you can done. And then when you hit the road, it all pauses. I'm sorry. I wrecked my voice yesterday. Um, We don't have that anymore. Well, I definitely don't because I'm doing real estate and stuff. So, and we have families with people want to check in with more, but so I was up at nine yesterday doing real estate before all of the like, you know, fun desert day started. So it's, um, I still have to do both. Having a kid probably changes the math quite a bit as well. Um, (laughs) yeah, drastically, but you know, when Tildy went with us those first five years, not that I remember much of it, you know, how we tend to just block out something that's so like impossibly hard that when people go, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know, man, we didn't, we didn't have nannies, you know, I didn't have a lot of help, but, um, we put her on our schedule. We didn't try to keep like a baby nap bedtime, pretend that we were at home being normal. She just stayed up late and slept in late like the rest of us. How much of it does she remember? I mean, you, you know, you blocked it out, but like being, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't think I have any memories from before I was five. Um, yeah, you know, you have those little fleeting ones. I've got some three and four year old memories, you know, your very first ones, but they're almost nothing. So, and that was one of the things that was sad when she had to go to school. I'm like, Oh man, not that it didn't impact her and help with her sort of worldview and her inner wisdom being around all these like intellectual adults and, and traveling the world and never being infantilized by any of us. She had a really hard time transitioning into school. Teachers talked to her like she was a baby and all the kids around her kind of seemed like babies. It was weird to see. I. It was the drawback. She was pretty lonely at school because she didn't relate to kids her age, and that's been that's followed her a little bit through into her adult. You know, now she's just now an adult, but um, she did get to go on some tours. You know, if we would do a tour in the summer with a bus in Europe, we made sure she could come out and see some of that. So she got a really good one with me at age eleven. That was transformative. And another great one, her dad works with us. So she gets both her parents now if she comes out. And uh, so she got to come out and do a really cool, like she went and got her ear pierced in Amsterdam because the age was only 16. And uh, so she she's had a couple of, she's down in Guatemala do, starting to do her own traveling. So it's it's good. That's a hard line to walk though. You obviously like, and 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 this isn't just like touring, but you know, kids in general, you know, you want to treat them like re- adults, but I, but I imagine both the fact of having one and then having that one on tour, you need to be a, more responsible than you were in the early days. 
quite a bit, quite a bit. <clears throat> but you know, that's probably a good thing because being being an irresponsible rock star indefinitely, um, I think, can stunt you in some ways that are hard to come back from. So I felt like I got this great arrested development Peter Pan phase of my life. And then I got to tame that down by having a child. What it can also do, though, is make you go really berserkers if you have a night off to like, if you're not responsible, you sort of get it all out at once. And that can be pretty painful, too. Uh, it was fun having her out, though. When did you start the real estate gig? Six years. It's been six years. What motivated that? Well, touring at the at the level, you know, there's a certain level of venue uh, where you make enough money to make a living from being a mm -hmm. touring band. And I felt like we were just right under that level. Like, like half the shows are that level and half in the smaller towns. We couldn't quite keep it up that high. And, uh, and I just don't think we were happy touring that often. And I started to just realize the signs of just sort of discontent and almost an apathy toward being on the road, just like going through the motions, like sure. We're having fun. Cause we've been doing this forever and we love each other, but also people were getting like, you know, kind of salty a little easier. And I'm like, I don't, I just don't know if this is, the right balance for us. So, so we dialed it way back. And now when we get on the road, we can't believe we get to still do this. We are, this is going to be awesome. And it's got all this joy and, and gratitude to be out here, which is a much better <clears throat> mindset to be in because it's hard. It's hard being out here, right? It's freaking exhausting. It's a lot of work all day long. Um, you know, there's a lot of logistics to deal with besides the show. And uh, so now that we have that balance, that also means a pay cut. And um, I didn't want to kill the joy in our band to make enough money to survive the living that we were comfortable with. And I had to find something that dovetailed. I didn't want to quit music to go do another career. And why would I do that? And uh, I can do real estate on the road. I'm doing two transactions right now. I don't take on so many clients that I can't manage it. If it gets too busy, I sh share them with somebody else, um, which I've only had to do, I think, once. Um, so it's fine. And I'm good at it. And I get to be this not square agent that artists prefer to work with. I assume that's quite an asset in Portland. For sure. For sure. I mean, 90% of my clients are artists. Um, and, and I work with all friends and friends of friends and fans. So I don't do anything outside of referral for work. And that keeps me working with people that are, that treat me with respect and that I, that I get, we get each other and I can use my hustle to make really good things happen in people's lives. So I'm good at it. It's fun. I like it. And it supplements the income in a way that I can still go do to work. You alluded to this a little bit, but there's this thing that happens with bands, you know, once they've been around for a certain period of time, unless, you know, again, like they, they cross a certain threshold and become superstars, you know, the fan base gets older and they have kids too. And then they're not <clears throat> coming out to shows as much as they used to. So there's a little bit of diminishing returns, but also like so many bands that I've talked to that were around in the nineties, you get that second wave because I, you know, the kids get older or, you know, maybe the kids start coming to the shows themselves. So like people, people return. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I didn't know this because we, we kind of so much of being a band is fly by the seat of your pants. There's no, there's no roadmap, you know, rarely do you get to communicate with your peers um, to like right now we're on tour with the black angels. And what I'm discovering is that this is an incredible asset to work with a band at our level and be like, how do you do it? What are you fighting for? How do you negotiate a better net at the end? Cause I don't know how many people know this or don't know this, but especially I want to speak to this because people are complaining a lot about ticket prices lately. 
Now the resale market, that's a, that's a disaster. We don't, we don't need to get into that. I think anybody that's ever bought a ticket feels like I want to pay the price for the seat unless you're, you know, months out or something. And it's one seat left on a sold out show. I guess you can raise the price, but that, that, that thing's horrible. But what I'm talking about is what price gets set. The band see, you know, I should do the math and give a percentage so that people really knew, but you could say out of a hundred thousand dollars, the bands are getting a thousand dollars. I mean, it's like so crazy. It's so low because booking agent takes a percentage, management takes a percentage, accountants take a percentage, and then all the expenses and all the crew. And then at the very end, you see what's left. And a lot of times it's nothing. Nothing is left. It's a break-even tour that we just went out to pay the bills for a dozen people, except the four who are the creators of the content that provides the work. And not just a dozen people, all the people in the venue too, right? All those other local crew that, that gets paid because we're doing this. So it's... um there's a lot of room for improvement and I want everyone to get a cut, but I want to see it become more equitable. And so talking to other artists that, that can do that, that are involved in that way, um, has been really fascinating. What have you learned from those conversations? Well, it just started yesterday. It's funny. This tour feels like it's been so long and this is our fourth show today. I think it's because you probably slept a cumulative of four hours in that period. Well, the first thing, I'm not drinking on the tour, which is kind of the only way I can do it, just because there is so much to take care of that um, a hangover would just really wipe me out. You get past a certain age, and it's like, I just physically, (sighs) I can't do it anymore. Sleeping on the bus is a thing, right? It's it's not deep as deep as sleep, so you are kind of tired. No matter what, if you eat all your veggies, do your exercise, do all the things. You can have a really good day, but the energy level is typically lower than a normal at-home good day energy level. And some of that can give sort of a surreal magicness to it. It's like a soft focus to the whole experience. And so it gives tours this dreamy state at best, (laughs) at worst nightmare state. As we were talking about the real estate thing that, uh, Obviously, like you didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming, but you, you kind of preemptively saved your ass for the pandemic there. Like so, so many artists were just. Oh. oh my gosh. I don't know. I might have lost my house. I mean, we put that Toffle Music album out right away that we recorded years ago. And that wasn't for money. That was more to like give something to all the music fans that were now starving for music. So we put out this instrumental album. Uh, we did 30 second songs that came out every Friday. So the content kept coming, but any reliable income didn't exist. We had reserves cause we, we run a decent business, but it's still, I think maybe after this tour, we could consider ourselves to have safe reserves for a company again. So it wasn't just not having, using up, dwindling those reserves until they were nothing. You then have no operating expenses. And so it just becomes like each of the first sewers were like borrowing and left and right just to get the buses reserved and stuff and, and try to eke out some profit to like build back up again. So yeah. And, and at first, of course, the real estate stopped too. And so everyone was on unemployment. Thank God the independent contractors kind of won COVID because they got, they got for the first time just seen as a workforce of America. Like a very rare win. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just couldn't believe that it really went through that these uninsured, uh, you know, totally unstably employed independent contractors all got seen as valued as much as the nine to fivers and the 401 cares and stuff. Even though we still had shit for healthcare and no retirement, we at least got some unemployment, you know, and some stimulus. So that was great. And then real estate went berserkers. 
I mean, I've never had so much business, nor do I want that. I mean, thank you universe that saved me. I'm so glad I was busy. If I was that busy and doing the band, um, I'd be referring out. It just wouldn't be, I couldn't, I just want a video to one. I, you can't, you know, taking on a, a client is a huge responsibility. They're, they're making a big, scary transaction, probably the biggest of their life. You can't just like drop the ball. <laughs> it's interesting because I think you use the word like company to, re- to refer to the band, which is a really interesting way to, to think about it. And, and I suspect that that's something that sort of like, again, happens over time as you become, you know, as it's clear that this is your livelihood. And as it's clear that, like you said, like you're going to have to you know plan for the future and you've got, <clears throat> and you're not the only person depending on you anymore. If I was going to teach a course in, you know, professional rock and roll. One of the hugest things, because a lot of times people start making money and they're young, right? It's kind of like athletes, athletes and musicians need a different, um, fiscal responsibility course than just most Americans. And most Americans don't have a course for that. Like we don't know how to take care of money, how to do taxes, how to balance your checkbook. Yeah, we're supposed to learn some years of what some dumb war that happened, but not how to write a check, not how to, you know, getting rid of home ec and getting rid of auto because boys had to take one and girls had to take another. No, you dumbasses, you all have to take all of it. You don't cancel it because you are being sexist about it. You make everybody sew on a patch, change a tire, write a checkbook. Do the things that make you go be able to have your own apartment and your own vehicle and eventually your own family. What what the fuck about not teaching this stuff to people? But then you get musicians and athletes that just go out and do these things that aren't fostering higher education. <laughs> We're not out here getting smarter in certain ways. Other ways, you know, we, we learn a lot about the world that is um, uh, a priceless education. But I would say that make sure that you've got your hands on the steering wheel. We put ourselves on a salary, which we thought was really mature. We just got the same amount, and then the, everything just rolled over into this pot. But the problem was nobody looks at the pot. Nobody's paying attention. And all these people getting a percentage off the top, sure, they're making sure you have a career so that they can get theirs. And I'm not saying they're bad people because of it. But if you get it off the top, what motivation do you have to make sure there's anything left at the bottom? Why are the musicians the bottom? You know, we're the creators. This whole thing exists. And then you put us down at the bottom and everybody at the top goes chomp, 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 chomp. And so there's no incentive. And so you have to make sure that that your business is running efficiently. And And here's the other problem is. Most artists don't have a business sense. They're two different kinds of people to hold that stuff, you know, in your brain at the same time and worry about merch percentages and these different overheads and, you know, how much are we paying this person? And is this person actually doing their job? That's not fucking fun. Nobody gets in a band to do that shit. Yuck. And, um, I happen to like it to an extent. Right. And so I like connecting the dots it was necessity. I lived in ignorance blissfully for many, many years and had a great time just being a rock star, arrested development, Peter Pan, kid forever. Um, but I do happen to get off on figuring that stuff out and puzzling it out and moving things into, into different columns and fighting for equity, uh, for an equitable, um, solvent business model. Um, and I'm learning every day and it's steep and it's frustrating and there's I don't know what I don't know. And so I'm always just begging people to shed light on how things work and what, and get to the point where I only know what I'm supposed to know and not have to hold all this extra information. Cause I'm not sure which part I need yet. Um, I can see why that's daunting to take on and why people never would. And those people end up in huge amounts of debt where their taxes weren't handled properly. They owe money. We went through this. You owe money all over the planet. You end up underwater. And you're, you're almost an indentured slave to your own craft because everybody wants, you owe everyone now instead of everyone. 
So there's the, oh, everyone category. There's the everyone's getting paid, but you category. And then there's the, we're running a solvent business and we're getting paid doing what we love. And um, there needs to be more information out there for artists to um, find ways to manage that in a way that's going to make it so that they can keep doing what they want to do. You strike me as a as a practical person. Listening to some some interviews that you did, I mean, you know, you mentioned shop class. I know, I know, like you you took shop class, and I know that you were, um, you know, you had whether or not you liked it, you ha- you had an aptitude for math. So, like you you did possess some of that that practicality going into things. I did, I did. Like I did the merch at the very beginning because I was concerned that my math mind would atrophy in this environment. I, I did not want to turn to mush. And, you know, I knew like, if you don't use it, you lose it. And I was like, oh no, I'm just going to forget everything. And, and I can't say I'm good at math next to somebody who practices math and, and is an up-to-date mathematician. But the brain that I have is an aptitude for math which means that I can move through numbers quickly, even if I don't understand them. I can look at accounting and go, this isn't right. You know, this, I can just tell it doesn't add up or I can tell that it's off or I can estimate good things quickly. And I can see that next to somebody else that's trying to figure out a good guesstimate of something. I'm like, oh, I move through that fast. So yes, having that, having some innate business acumen have become really incredible assets for the band that give me as big of a sense of pride to contribute as it does to write a good baseline. I'm a, you know, I'm a Gemini. I have that kind of duality that I can sort of carry both. Am I a wizard of business? No. Am I a wizard of music? No, because I'm not, I'm in the middle. And so I'm, I'm kind of good at both and I have to try to not have imposter syndrome on either side and just know that the role that I'm playing is really helping keep this band together in valuable ways. Um, even if I might not be the most genius contributor in the studio, I'm doing things that get to keep us in the studio. So it's, <laughs> it works. There's all these practical things that we're talking about, but like the flip side of that is being somebody who can't play an instrument and deciding that you're going to be a rock band and then making that your life is that's not a particularly practical way to go about things. No, I, I have a, um, I don't worry. I don't have a deep sense of worry. I mean, I can worry a problem and, you know, hamster wheel it until I can find a way out, but I don't just conjure a worst case scenario. You don't have anxiety or like deep anxiety. I have anxiety in different ways. I have problem solving anxiety. Like I have too many plates. I probably have manufactured anxiety from constantly taking on too many things but I don't have general life anxiety. And so that has afforded me this ability to kind of leap and the net will appear. Sure. I'll be in a band. Sure. I'll do this thing. Sure. I'll do real estate. I didn't go work on a team. I didn't know how you're supposed to start to do real estate. I just took the class and went and started my own business. I don't. Okay. People like that worked. I'm like, well, not for the first year. No, (laughs) but it did eventually. So so jumping into things that I don't, you know, there's, um, I just read this really good saying about don't keep the fear of not being good at something, uh, keep you from doing it because I promise you there's somebody out there doing it with confidence, very mediocre. <laughs> and so if they can jump in and do a mediocre job, you can jump in and you might do a fantastic job. Why not just jump in? And so that kind of show up for life. Say yes. Saying yes gets me in trouble because I say yes too much, but it gets me more rewards than saying no too much would do. And so I really, really do face life of like, do you know how to do that? No. Are you going to do it? Yeah, I'm going to do it. We'll see, you know, fuck around, find out. It's that fearlessness, but it also has to be, you know, what you said, you use the phrase not in the first year to refer to real estate, but that apply very much applies to being in, in a band too. So it, it has to be a combination of that fearlessness, but also really being willing to stick with a thing, even if you're not good at it for the first year. Oh, I probably wasn't good at it for lots of years. I mean, my stage presence and charisma obviously got me through quite a lot. My natural sense for rhythm, having a dance background 
got me through a lot. But um, learning how to play an instrument, I can't say I still really ever did. <laughs> I'm still always just like fucking around until a cool thing happens. I don't have this like, I know what goes where. And that has left kind of an experimental quality to me that can be kind of unpredictable. And I live in no box of musical structure. I still don't know the rules. And I started to realize the value in it. And as much as I would love to know an instrument inside and out and speak that instrument the way I see people do it, um, I've traded that for, for constant newness. And so I play lots of different instruments very badly compared to anyone that really knows what they're doing, right? But I still come up with super cool shit that goes on the record. So, you know, I guess I'll just keep doing it that way. You mentioned imposter syndrome before. Is, is that something that you grappled with at the beginning of the band at the beginning of the band i was utterly unaware of anything that was going on besides me having the time of my life so no time for imposter syndrome no imposter anything i was just like this is cool but then i think the first time it really struck me was we had an opportunity to work with massive attack in their studio in bristol and i was like oh yeah fun cool 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 and then something came over me that paralyzed me i thought these are synth guys these are keyboard guys that's the other thing by playing a synth bass nobody else played a synth bass so i had nobody to compare to i was the only synth bass player that played percussion so i just was winning by having no competition when we went down with massive attack um i couldn't do it i couldn't go in i thought these guys are gonna see right through my inabilities this is gonna be humiliating and I'm not going to go. And I didn't go. And then I admonished myself to no end going, wow, Zia, this isn't how you live life. This isn't your leap in the net will appear. This isn't your fuck around, find out. This isn't show up for everything because if you're the only one that shows up, you're instantly the best. And if someone shows up better than you, at least you should have learned something. That's my philosophy. And I ignored it completely. I, I really did get that intimidated. And I was like, if you ever have a chance like this, you are not missing out on this, McCabe. And for some wonderful reason, the universe gave us another time to go to the studio of Massive Attack. And I walked in there, not terrified, but small. I felt very, very small. I don't spend a lot of the world feeling small, my time in the world. I take up a good amount of space. I actually feel more self-conscious about how much space I take up. And I went in there so self-conscious and so tiny. And they put me in this room full of keyboards with a little projector, all going through the same mixer. And I'd never had my own space to make music. And I'd always had these boys aping around me while I was doing something. So I'd only really done the absolute basics. And so when they put me in there with this little projector and they'd bring me the tape, the discs of the tracks they'd started, I was in my own world get a little bit, you know, smoke a spliff and create by myself. I'd literally never done that as a musician. And I came up with all kinds of ideas and parts and try them on the different keyboards. And I timidly would go in and track them and they became the um, kind of pinnacle of each track. Uh, and then the boys came in and built around some of this stuff because they were just down there getting shit hammered. This thing wasn't as big of a deal to them. And, um, that changed it for me. I, I started to find a way to contribute. I got over my imposter syndrome a little bit because I found my way to contribute, but still I'm around incredibly talented musicians all the time and they can pick up instruments and make music and I can, you know, plunk out a few guitar songs and I can do a little here and a little there, but nothing that makes me feel ownership. Over When I make crazy fucked up sounds on my MS-20, that's my machine. I can have ownership over that, but there's no campfire where that happens. And then in a jam session, I can take ownership over finding cohesion and actually creating a thing where people can jam. Because a little to most non-musicians know jam sessions are usually pretty lame. There's just two people thinking they have to solo the whole time. Um, so I can hold stuff down. I can be the glue. I can be a catalyst. But having just real true ownership over an instrument inside of a situation with other musicians is rare outside of my own band. You know, I, I can't just roll in and 
and hold my own with that. Or I, or I feel like I can't. And that's, that's kind of my imposter syndrome. I, I, I won a lottery. Like I, I'm here by, by scratching the right ticket, you know, not because I did anything to create this outside of a dance background and, a, and charisma. You know, it's not quite enough to make you feel like you belong. Charisma will get you real far in life though. It will. But I also see the word charisma used for people who seem to lack talent otherwise. And so it makes me feel like that word gets thrown around. And so I don't know how much weight it has when it's used with me. Is it a, is it a backhanded compliment of like, oh my God, your charisma is just off the charts. Oh, right. That means I'm a mediocre musician. Your posture syndrome will reinterpret the strengths you have into backhanded versions of a strength you don't have. And that's the kind of thing imposter syndrome will do to your mind. It's a dangerous one. And I, and I, I try to not live in that world. And I know how many people that I think are insanely talented have it. So it gives you no way to see where you measure up and compare. And the ego won't stop trying to find that place. So it's, it's, it's tough. You know, artists have fragile little things. I think that charisma is what gets your foot through the door in the first place, but you still have to show up after that. You still have to show up, but yes. And, and obviously I do rely on my charisma. One of my roles in the band is connecting the audience to the, the musicians. And that's a role. If you go to a show, I can feel it. I can see it. People are looking to me to help understand how we're supposed to feel right now. I mean, the music spells it out for the most part, but I am a physical interpretation of what we're experiencing together. And I'm not doing it to show them. I'm doing it to be authentic to, well, I'm doing it because I have a terrible attention span and keeping my body in it keeps my mind in it, which keeps me present. So I have to move to keep the music going through me. If I stand still, it starts to go around me. Um, but in turn, the audience has been able to draw from that and it's become an inadvertent responsibility. So my charisma is one of my instruments on stage. The, the way I express myself, the joy and the depth and the introspectiveness and the exuberance, all of that is shared with the audience and amplified because I'm on stage the same way a musical instrument is amplified. I've never articulated. I've never articulated that before. And uh, so I was actually really, I was enjoying finding my way through that. Thank you. <laughs> that was spot on. Um, getting back to this, you know, what we were talking about before, as far as like, I think the way you put it is making money when you're young. I mean, you know, to, to my mind, obviously, I, I think about you being on a on, on capital and you, you being around in that time, those sort of like the last throws of major labels, like, you know, just effectively throwing money at people, um, having that kind of success at that early stage, like that must uh, knock your perspective off whack completely. I, I'm not sure what it did for the other guys, because, you know, remember I was 18 and they were 26, 27. So, um, and Courtney had had his eye on this prize since he was like eight right? You know, he'd have nightmares about writing embarrassing lyrics. He, this is what he set out to do. He's driven. It's why when I, when he offered me to join the band, I went and sat in the basement at, of my, um, you know, where I was uh, renting going, what does this guy want from me? I mean, he obviously sees something and wants something because he's calculating, he's driven and he knows what he wants, and I don't see how I fit it. I didn't know who Andy Warhol was. Um, I didn't know much. I knew nothing about the music coming over from England in the 90s, you know, which is what they were listening to, Ride and, and Spiral Carpets. And, you know, Peter made me a couple of mixtapes to, like, kind of educate me. But so for them, maybe they were taking it in stride in a different way. For me, I was still just like oblivious. I was just going through every single step, having a really good time, trying to figure out where I fit in, where are my strengths. So when we got on Capitol, what I would do, like kind of back to the charisma thing, is I would, it's a circular building, right? So I would put on roller skates and I would roller skate around the building, making friends with everybody because in my mind, 
these guys have a roster of artists and they each have their departments and they go down the list doing their, their job to each band. I'm radio. I got to call and schmooze all the radios. I'm college radio. I got to do this, you know, and you, we interface with all these different things. And so I thought, you know, besides liking the music, if they have a personal, if they want me to succeed, if they care about me and my band, where does that put us on the list? Probably above anybody that's been a dick, right? And so I thought, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to connect with these guys and have an impact that way. And I'm right by the door, by the way. <laughs> I should have shown you each time a band member walked by. It would have looked really cute. It took me like the first 15 minutes to figure out where you were. Yeah, the, the tour bus. It's, it, I, I can't, is this going to be aired on video? Oh, it's not. I'm fine with that. I was like, I'm just going to be this, this chick on the bus that like has weird makeup on from the night before. <laughs> I, I think it's a good look. No, I think you're, I think you're nailing it. I know someone goes, are you going to leave your sleep mask on? I'm like, well, it explains a lot. First of all, That's fair. <laughs> and, and it looks better than my hair. looks. So I'm like, I'm just leaving it. First of all, it's not like we got a bunch of money. We didn't get any money. We use that money to build our business, right? Um, to buy our own studios, to, to be autonomous inside of a major label, which is really, really difficult to do. And they kind of hated us for it, right? So we wouldn't rent studios uh, by the hour. We'd either rent a space and build a studio in it, which we did for Monkey House and we did for 13 Tales. And then with the success from Bohemian, bought a quarter of a city block, an old machine shop that we still own. And we live in, uh, we do, uh, we don't live in it. We do all of our work in there. There's a site for shooting videos. There's a huge stage for rehearsing. We can do shows in there. We can shoot videos, um, kitchen, have dinners when bands come through town. So that's the, that's the kind of way that we handle that. So for me, sure, we slowly started to get a little bit bitter, bigger of an income, but we've never really paid ourselves above like a, a we're a middle-class band, right? And those almost don't exist. You've got van bands, and then you've got people that are really making some money out on the road. And then you've got this layer of, I mean, middle-class band just takes a lot of the sparkle out of it, but I don't know what else to call it right? We're not getting rich and we are making a living. And that's kind of the, where we lived with that. And we were comfortable. And, um, um, so when it really struck me was when Bohemian, I think it was when Bohemian was really blowing up, especially also because we didn't blow up in the United States, like, uh, we did in Europe. So once we're in Europe, someone puts the mic, they go, how does it feel to be a, oh, what do they say? How does it feel to be a superstar? A, a, massive rock star and they like put the mic over and i'm going oh what we're massive we're pop stars we're how does it feel to be massively famous so whatever the question was, I was and you're going, like, like i can walk down the street in portland all day long and i don't know what you're talking about and so i was going were we huge and we have um european crew members that have been with us you know off and on through the whole thing and they will go zia you were everywhere that Vodafone ad was everywhere. That song, because it was, you know, charted, I think, number three in the BBC, Radio One. And so for them, it was unavoidable. And in the United States, it was college radio. And I don't even think it topped 40. Maybe. No, I think it like made it to like 48 or 50. You know, I think we were top 100, but not top 40. And um, I think that kept us much more level-headed because I could definitely tell we were young enough where fame can make you an asshole. You're not fully developed, you know, and then all of a sudden every, the whole world is at your fingertips and it is too tempting to not just become a demanding little fuck. And uh, I saw it happen to us a little bit in Europe and thank God we plateaued right there. Not for our, for our retirement accounts, but for our well-being, we're still a band. And you seem to still like each other. And I am closer to Courtney. We, me and Courtney have been through our stuff. I am the one who faces off to him. I think in his life, I am the one. And I'm sure there's been others, but I'm always here. So if I'm going to be one of the ones, I'm the one that does it a lot. And we've been like, Urgh! and we have come to this level of 
deep respect for each other and trust of what each other's strengths are and compassion for what each other's weaknesses are and acceptness and acceptedness for each other's little shitty behaviors that come out when we're not doing it right. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. And um, I had accepted him long before, but in a much like lower expectation sort of way, I think vice versa. And now we accept each other with gratitude and joy. And I am so happy with the place that me and him have come to. And we are good business partners. And, um, and we've got Pete there, who's always been our moral compass. Um, I go to Pete. Me and Courtney get fired up about something. And then I go to Pete to get a, a level perspective. And then I decide what action to take. And that's a really cool dynamic for us to share. We do like each other. We like each other because we spend the right amount of time together too, you know, and that really helps. I think married couples should have a lot more space. I think they would do a lot better if they weren't on top of each other when they needed space. You crossed that threshold, right? I mean, you married, you know, the tour manager. I mean, that was like, you, you kind of mixed business and pleasure there, right? It was like all the time. That story is a little bit, he's actually on this tour. But um, <clears throat> he's stage manager. He started out as merch, then my keyboard tech, then took over the stage, then stayed home to raise Matilda while I toured. And um, which was, and we split up when she was six. So we, we, we've been split up for like 12, 13 years. But we are the most best friends in the world. We're still married. We never got around to it. We, had our, we actually had our 22-year wedding anniversary two days ago. Oh, Mazel tov. <laughs> I got him some uh, some spooky Twinkies. Um, and, that is, that's uh, a 22 year anniversary tradition. Yeah, yeah, too. too. Um, he's fantastic. He's my best friend in the whole world. We love having him back out on the road. He's actually our keyboard tech now, so he, he's stage manager, but he kind of works more for Pete than he does for me, which is probably good for the dynamic. We are out here laughing our asses off, having the time of our life, getting to bring Tildy out to meet us in Europe last. Um, summer was so great. So all of that stuff. So that I love mixing business with pleasure. Like I said, all my real estate clients are my friends. Most people don't have their friends as their clients because they're afraid that'll affect the relationship. To me, I feel like it enhances the relationship. It gives me an opportunity to serve somebody I care about in a meaningful way with a skill that I have. You know, like, watch me do this awesome thing for you. So, and it, when it goes bad, it's scary, right? And you have to navigate it like a freaking grown-up. Yeah, yeah, it's been a trip. At this point, I'm sure it's obvious, um, you know, having known each other and, you know, as you said, been in business together for, you know, 30 or like thir probably 30 plus years at this point, um, you know, but... When 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 you examined it, when you looked at that early day, those early days, and you tried to figure out what Courtney saw in you, do you do you get a sense of what that thing was? I asked him. So <clears throat> when I made the deal, I really felt like it was a crossroads. I I couldn't tell if I was making a deal with the devil. I did not know. And I the sat deal on the just couch. being joining the bands. You mean or yeah, I could I knew. One of my little magical powers is a deep, deep insight for how things are playing out. I get each relationship, how it's going to end, and then I decide if I want to do it anyway, right? Like, this one's going to break my heart. Ooh, it's probably going to be worth it, you know? Or I'm going to break this guy's heart, but let's see where it goes. Or this is going to fizz out, whatever. And so when I was sitting there with, with going, what does this guy want from me? And do I want to give it? What am I? What am I? All magic comes with a price. So what is it that I am risking, losing, paying? What is the price? And I'm sitting in this basement apartment, you know, $100 a month. First place I've ever lived, not with my parents. And uh, I thought it was this thing that I have that my, my, my place in the world, my sense of I'm here. I, I kind of know what's right and wrong. I know how to fight for the little guy. I have a, I have a confidence. I have a sense of joy, happiness that is almost incorruptible, right? 
And I only knew this from the feedback of people around me. It's not like I walked around owning this, but I had a sense of this being a strength I had that most others didn't just from the examples and feedback I'd gotten through my life and started to add up. I'm like, do other people not feel like this on the inside? I think I have a special quality here that makes me feel this way. And I was like, you know what? I think that's what he wants. Can he have some of it and I can still have some of it? Or can he take this away from me and then I don't have it? And what is it going to feel like to not be able to fly when you're used to being able to fly? Will this crush me? Is this a part of my character that makes me me in a bigger way than I even understand? And I was like, fuck it, because I know for a fact this is an experience that I may never even come near in a lifetime if I don't take it. An opportunity. And I jumped in. Little did I know it'd be, you know, 30 years next June. And um, so that was, and yeah, he kind of did take it for a while. And I took it back, right? So we had a lot of tug of war in the in the early year. But but then when I asked him a few months in, when I realized, I, how do I even fit into this? And I was like, Corny, why did you let me be in your band? You're, you're, you're calculated and driven and I just don't look like I fit. You know, I don't, I don't look the part and nor do I have the skills for the part. And he goes, you showed no fear. You were not a little bit scared of any aspect of the conversation of showing you something you don't know of any of it. And I was like, I guess that tracks. If that was the criteria. Okay. I'll take it. That's why you let, and I'm a fast learner. If I wouldn't have picked this shit up right away, you know, it wouldn't have worked. That intuition that you described of like, like being able to almost like project the end of a relationship. Did you have an idea of what the end of that relationship might look like? Not this one. No, I was more focused on what's the trade off. What's, what's my pay that for me, every single step, and I have done a fantastic job of living in this world with gratitude, besides the little blip of, of over entitlement that we kind of got high on, right? We, we, we got like coked out on entitlement and privilege of being rock stars. And we, we luckily none of us got addicted and we got off of our little entitlement horse in a p- pretty good way. So when we like played the clubs that I loved going to see bands in, the tiniest one to then La Luna, the thousand seat venue opening, and then the thousand seat venue headlining people lined around the corner, some of them with my haircut, right? And I'm just looking at it going, I went to these shows. I knew what the person that I love's hair was like, right? I didn't get their haircut, but, and I was going, we've made it. This is it. This is the, this is the big cheese of our career. And then we go on a West coast tour and I'm like, we're going on a tour. Now we've made it. We're crossing the United States opening for love and rockets. This is it. I can die happy. And so every we're going in an airplane. I'd never been in an airplane. I grew up in a log cabin. I was like one of the Beverly Hillbilly Clampets. These guys were taken around. These guys were relatively cultured compared to me. Peter went to art school in New York. You know, he lived in San Francisco. He went to private school in England. I'd never left battleground. I should add in for people that when you say I, li- I grew up in a log cabin, you are not being facetious and you are not being hyperbolic. Like that is the actual literal truth. My dad built a cabin out of logs. He still lives there. There was no bathroom, you know, for the first several years. It was just the woods and horses and ducks and rabbits and organic food and, and hippies that want to live off the grid. It, and they had an amazing record collection. That is the thing they gave me. And I have musicians in the grandparents and stuff, but n- none of it was shared with me other than genetically. But that music collection kept me going. So anyway, yeah, these guys were seemed incredibly cultured. And, you know, they'd been through college. They were eight, nine years older than me. <laughs> They knew who Andy Warhol was. They knew Peter made me read the book, Andy Warhol, A to Z, like the second I admit it. So I'm like, um, so who is this Andy Warhol guy anyway? And they're just going, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, and going in the airplane for the first time and staying in a hotel room by myself, flying to England every single step. I felt complete. 
I wasn't hungry for any level of success. I was hungry for experience. I'm tactile. I'm curious. I need variety. I'm like a Gemini with ADHD. Everything needs to constantly change and be a new challenge and I can thrive. I love solving different problems every day. When I think of people doing any sort of nine to five for an entire span of a career, and I know people can do that and they are satisfied. And I know people do that that are miserable that should be doing things more like I'm doing. And I die inside at the thought of it. I can work 40, 60 hours a week at two or three different jobs. Monotony is my death. It kills me. And so for me, this works. I've also seen people on the road who absolutely crumble. And that blew my mind. I'm like, wait, everybody doesn't wish they had my life? No, most of you guys would absolutely hate it. They think they want it until they get it. It is so hard. It's so fucking hard. You have to love it. You have to be madly in love with doing this out here because it sucks otherwise. And that's when we slowed down our touring. I realized we weren't madly in love and it was going to suck. And we were starting to turn on each other just barely. I mean, we caught it so quick, but just barely. We were turning on each other quicker. You know, I saw meanness start to come out and I'm like, we're not happy. We have to fix this right now. And that's that foresight and that intuition of like, are we living in balance? Or am I living a life that is balanced and, and joyful and, and feeding me and nourishing me or is it depleting me? And um, it, we were starting to deplete. Those moments that you described early on where, where every new plateau was just like incredibly exciting to you and, and, and novel. Um, do you still get those with the band? Uh, yes, because I constantly add instruments that I don't know how to play. <laughs> so I challenge myself by doing like quantity over quality when it comes to instruments. So I got to put some pants on. I got to do sound check in a minute. Um, so I just got a text. Um, and, you know, for me, I don't mean to, but I keep taking on more and more and more um, uh, responsibilities on the business side, which um, keeps me on this really steep learning curve of how does our business work? How do I, what things do I have power to influence? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that, that keeps me, I guess it keeps me living on my growing edge so, so rather than just feasting on, on wild new rock and roll related experiences, I'm, I'm keeping that part of my brain happy by um, constantly learning about the business side. And, and that's good enough for me. That works. 